Now, if you go ahead and, and turn in your Bibles, we're going to be continuing our sermon series through the book of Job. We took a couple of weeks off with a Christmas Eve message and then a serving and discipleship message from Matthew 28 and Romans 12 last week. And now we're back to it. So we're going to be picking up at Job 28, that's on page 435 of the ESV Pew Bibles. Job 28, the entire chapter 1 through 28. This is the wisdom chapter in Job. And before we go to scripture, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, as your assembled church, we are assembled here on the Lord's Day, and once again we ask for the illuminating power of your Holy Spirit. Father, give us light to see your word. Help us understand the true meaning of this passage and also the ability to apply it to our lives. Father, we ask these things in faith and we ask these things trusting that you will answer this prayer. In Jesus' name, amen. There are certain manufacturers of doors, of interior doors for homes. And when they send these doors out to be sold, they send them as a unit. They send the door itself that's on a hinge, and then they send it oftentimes within the frame. So the two sides and the top, and sometimes they wrap it in plastic so it doesn't fly open or, or you know, become uh, unsquare or anything in, in transit. And they're rather large, as you can imagine. You think about the interior doors of your home, they're about seven feet high and can be up to about three feet wide, and they're somewhat cumbersome. And so to help people manage this big, cumbersome piece of, of uh, lumber and, and board and, and door together, they will sometimes attach some courtesy handles to the side. They simply screw in these temporary handholds because these doors, as big and as cumbersome as they are, you really can't kind of just grab onto it or, or tuck it under your arm. But once the handles are in place, you can kind of just kind of lift it up and move it around your house or set it over against the wall or whatever you want to do. Just one person can manage it fairly easily. So it's kind of nice to have some handles. This morning, we're looking at Job 28. This is the wisdom chapter in the book of Job. If we want to understand this passage, we're going to have to install a couple handles on two ideas. We're going to have to install some handles that make them easier to carry around, easier to understand, because they can be quite cumbersome. And before we install those handles on, on these two ideas that we want to talk about, I want to ask a question. For those that have been along in the Job series from the beginning, or nearly all, all the series, I want us to think about this question. What is Job's major complaint? What is, what is Job's biggest concern? As you have read it, and as we've gone through it, for chapters 1 through 27, what, what seems to be Job's biggest complaint or, or, or biggest uh, cry that he cries out and, and makes voice or gives voice to? Now, we might say pain because he's in pain, but that's really not it. We know he's in excruciating pain, and he has been from, from the time he was afflicted, but he doesn't really talk about that all the time. He makes mention of it. It's not really the loss, although he does talk about that from time to time. He's lost uh, everything. He's lost all his possessions, all his wealth, all his, his cattle, his livestock, his entire family, except uh, his wife and, of course, his health. But that's also not what he talks about the most. 
It's not even the three friends and their poor treatment of him, and they have treated him very poorly in the book of Job, as we've seen that. It's none of those things. The biggest complaint, the biggest concern for Job seems to be his undeserved suffering. If you've been following along, that stood out more than anything. It is this questioning of why. Why everything has happened to him. Why God has treated him like an enemy when he should be treated like a friend. Why God has allowed the suffering and calamity to come upon him when the only thing Job is guilty of is walking before God, a blameless and upright man, fearing God, turning from evil. Remember, that is the consistent description of Job by the author and by God himself. Why? That's the big question. Job wants to know why. Why is God destroying me when all I've done is tried to, to live rightly before him? Job essentially wants God to pull back the curtain and show him the rationale, the reasoning behind everything that's happened to him. He, he sees everything that's happening. He wants to know why. It doesn't make sense to Job. And so he wants that question answered. Now, before we answer that question, before we, we have answered that question in many different ways, but what we want to see this morning is that God is not going to show him the answers. That's, that's the short answer to, to that why question. The, the answer is, I'm not going to show you. And so let's, let's install the first handle on this idea that we want to talk about. The idea is this. God is not going to show Job what's behind the curtain. Job wants God to explain to him why his suffering has happened to him, and God says no. And the idea we want to put handles on is God's blueprint wisdom. So blueprint wisdom, that's what we mean when we talk about God's undisclosed reasons for why things are happening. Why the, the inner workings and the, 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 the reasons behind God's providential working in this life, that's his blueprint wisdom. And I want us to make sure we get this. So if we think about a blueprint, a really simple blueprint, we might think of a floor plan to a, a one-bedroom house without all the utilities, just, just the footprint of the house. And we'd probably see four walls, a couple interior walls, and some, some door markings, and that's about it. it. It's very simple. But if we think about a complex blueprint, maybe a, a high-rise commercial building with all the utilities, all the plumbing, all the wiring, all the, all the fire emergency lines, everything in it, that would be quite complex. In fact, it would be several pages and it would be really busy looking. It would be, it'd be kind of hard to follow, especially if you're not used to looking at blueprints. Or any type of other complex machinery, maybe let's say the space shuttle. If we had the blueprint of the space shuttle and it, and it showed us everything on the inside, all the electrical components, all the tanks, all the hoses, all the lines, and the fittings, and the wiring, all, all those things, it would be overwhelming. Uh, we, we'd be able to see it all, but it would be overwhelming. All we can see is the exterior of this shuttle and these nice painted, uh, white painted panels, and maybe, you know, United States of America or a flag on, on the tail fin of the shuttle. We can see it working, but we can't see what makes it work. We'd have to look at the blueprints to see that. That's what we're talking about when we're talking about God's blueprint wisdom. We can see the world, we can see everything happening around us, but we don't see why it's happening. We don't see 
the, the rationale or, or the methods that God is, is using or his purposes for everything that happens in the world. That's part of his blueprint wisdom and that is something he has not shared with us. We have something else. It's not blueprint wisdom. The wisdom that God has made available to us we're going to call wisdom for the rest of us. Okay? This is the second idea that we want to put a handle on. Wisdom for the rest of us. It's not God's blueprint wisdom. It's not all his purposes that he is not going to disclose to us. It's something he has given us. And I'm going to hold off on defining that until later. But I want to be sure we've got the handles on these two ideas. Blueprint wisdom and wisdom for the rest of us. And here's the other thing. As we're, we're about to read through, just a second. 1 through 27, God's blueprint wisdom. Verse 28, wisdom for the rest of us. That's it. This chapter has been sometimes described as the hinge verse in the entire book of Job because it, it, it's kind of like a soliloquy. It's almost like Job's turning to the camera and he's not talking to his friends or he's describing wisdom, what it is, where it can be found, where it can't be found, and, and, and what it means for us. So this is a hinge chapter and look at the majority of this chapter is God's blueprint wisdom. There's one verse at the end that's wisdom for the rest of us. So here it is. This is Job 28. And uh, follow along or just, just listen either way. It says, Surely there is a mine for silver and a place for gold that they refine. Iron is taken out of the earth and copper is smelted from the ore. Man puts an end to the darkness and searches out to the farthest limit, the ore and gloom and deep darkness. He opens shafts in a valley away from where anyone lives. They are forgotten by travelers. They hang in the air, far away from mankind. They swing to and fro. As for the earth, out of it comes bread, but underneath it is turned up as by fire. Its stones are the place of sapphires, and it has dust of gold. That path no bird of prey knows, and the falcon's eye has not seen it. The proud beasts have not trodden it. The lion has not passed over it. Man puts his hand to the flinty rock and overturns mountains by the roots. He cuts out channels in the rocks, and his eye sees every precious thing. He dams up the stream so that they do not trickle, and the thing that is hidden he brings out to light. But where shall wisdom be found, and where is the place of understanding? Man does not know its worth, and it is not found in the land of the living. The deep says, it is not in me, and the sea says, it is not in me, or it is not with me, excuse me. It cannot be bought for gold, and silver cannot be weighed as its price. It cannot be valued in the gold of Ophir, its precious onyx or sapphire. Gold and glass cannot equal it, nor can it be exchanged for the jewels of fine gold. No mention shall be made of coral or of crystal. The price of wisdom is above pearls. The topaz of Ethiopia cannot equal it, nor can it be valued in pure gold. From where then does wisdom come, and where is the place of understanding? It is hidden from the eyes of all living and concealed from the birds of the air. Abaddon and death say, we have, not, we have heard a rumor of it with our ears. God understands the way to it and he knows its place for he looks to the ends of the earth and sees everything under the heavens. When he gave to the wind its weight and apportioned the waters by measure. When he made a decree for the rain and a way for the lightning of the thunder. Then he saw it and declared it. He established it and searched it out. And he said to man, Behold, the fear of the Lord, that is wisdom, and to turn away from evil is understanding. 
This chapter is about wisdom. It's about seeking it, its value, where it is, where it can be found. But it opens with a mining illustration of all things. That's what the first several verses of this chapter are describing, are ancient mining techniques. So these, I, the idea here is silver, gold, iron, copper, those are all mentioned in verses 1 and 2. And these are, of course, precious metals, and, and we understand that they're taken from the ground. Now, it requires great effort to take from the ground. It still does. But you can imagine in ancient times, before power tools, before electricity, before explosives, this was back-breaking labor. It was extremely difficult, extremely slow-going. In verse 3, the workers have to dig down into the ground, into the gloom and the blackness. Verse 4 talks about the, the miners, they're lowered into the shaft, uh, typically on, on a wooden uh, plank with, with ropes on it, or maybe a basket. These, these workers are lowered down, lowered down. Remember, no cables, no electric motors or elevators. They were hand-lowered down into these, these shafts, only the miner, far away from any village. Uh, these mines were unmapped, they were unexplored, they were uh, hidden from most people. Very few people knew where these mines were. Sometimes the, the openings were, were hidden or hard to find when you're out in the open wilderness. Only a very few people knew where they were, and even fewer went down into them to actually do any work. Verses 5 and 6, As for the earth, out of it comes bread, but underneath it is turned up by fire. So he's comparing mining and taking precious metals and stones from the earth to farming. He says, for, for the earth, as far as that goes, on the, on the top side, it's fairly straightforward. You plant the seed, the seed grows, and then you harvest the wheat, you grind it into flour, and boom, you've got bread. The earth produces bread fairly easily, not so with these precious metals and, and gems. They would often heat the openings, so one way to, to extract or to, or to get the rock to break up a little easier, they would build fires in these shafts, and they would heat the rock to extreme temperatures, and sometimes that would cause it to crack. And then after they've done that, they would pour water on it, and that would cause it to cool very rapidly, and sometimes that would cause it to crack. So that's what it means by uh, it's turned up by fire. And precious stones, sapphires, they mention a couple of things. Verses eight, 7 and 8, these, these things are not easily seen. Even the bird of prey and the falcon cannot see them out. It was generally thought, and we can understand why, if you've got a, a bird of prey or a falcon flying around in the air, they've got the ideal vantage point to see anything. These birds of prey have exceptional eyesight, and, and they can spot very small prey like mice and things like that from very high up in the sky. So this is kind of like the ultimate litmus test. If a bird of prey can't see it, then, then no one can. The lion, as powerful as a lion is, did not, does not have access to these precious metals, silver and gold, buried underneath the ground. And then verses 9 through 11, more detailed descriptions of these primitive mining techniques, chipping away the rock. Man exposes what is inside. He cuts out channels. Eventually, he gets to the precious stones. Damming up stream beds, or damming up streams exposes the riverbed. We understand why that, they do that to find the the metals are at the bottom. So the whole opening 1 through 11 is all about mining. 
And then it switches in verse 12, but where shall wisdom be found and where is the place of understanding? So the whole first part is about how difficult it is to find silver, gold, precious metals. And then now it talks about wisdom. And what wisdom are we talking about again? God's blueprint wisdom. Job is saying, where do we find the wisdom? Where do we find the answers to the why questions in life, both, both in the world and in our individual lives? And I also want us to see that in verse 12, this is another example of something we introduced a couple of weeks ago called synonymous parallelism. Remember, that's just a big fancy term to say that it's two lines worded somewhat differently that say the same thing. And this is good to know for more than just knowing the name of it to impress friends or something, synonymous parallelism. It's good to know when we're reading the Bible because when we run across this, we know that God is not trying to teach us two separate things. And we're not trying to search for, the, for two different meanings for one, one line. It means the same thing. And it's repeated for emphasis. So synonymous parallelism. What are these two lines saying? They're saying all these valuable things like silver and gold and iron and copper and sapphires, all these things through tremendous effort, man is able to find. It's hard, back-breaking, slow, painstaking work. But eventually he can find it. Not wisdom. Not God's blueprint wisdom. We can work all our, all our life. We can, we can throw everything at it. We're not going to find it. The idea is if, if man can cut down into the depths of gloomy darkness, if he can carve channels into the rock and under a mountain and bring up gold to the light of day, surely he can find anything. And this verse says, no, not God's blueprint wisdom. His private thoughts, his undisclosed purposes, those cannot be found. Verses 13 and 14, its value is unknown to man. It is also unobtainable by man. And then we see... The deep says, it is not in me, and the sea says, it is not with me. That's another example of synonymous parallelism. And in fact, I'm not going to mention it anymore, or else we'd be talking about it almost every other verse. But here it is again, two lines that mean about the same thing. Or they're worded slightly differently, but they mean the same thing. And it means that God's blueprint wisdom cannot be found in the ocean depths, which was considered another very mysterious and inaccessible place in ancient times. So, all down in the deep, gloomy darkness under the mountain, but also the depths of the sea. That was a very a mysterious, kind of unknown, unexplored place. And saying, wisdom can't be found there either. It's not underground, it's not underwater. Verses 15 and 19, it cannot be bought. All that language in verses 15 and 19 is saying the same thing. It's saying that God's wisdom cannot be found. It cannot be uh, bought with any of these things. It's more valuable than any of these things. Gold, silver, onyx, sapphire, jewels, crystal pearls, topaz, none of these things can be given in exchange for God's blueprint wisdom. Then we switch to it cannot be found in verses 20 through 22. It's hidden from all the eyes of the living. Abaddon, which means place of destruction. The NIV has destruction and death. So destruction and death. Do not know where wisdom is. It cannot be found. And then finally in verse 23, 
God alone looks to the ends of the earth and sees everything under the heavens. So up to this point, the chapter has been talking about how God's blueprint wisdom cannot be found. It, it's, it's, it's hidden, it's concealed, the eyes of the falcon can't see it, all living creatures cannot see it, but God sees everything. We can't see it, but God sees it because God sees everything. No, nothing is hidden from him. He knows it all because it's his blueprint wisdom. It's, it's God telling us, do you want to see my blueprint wisdom? I'm not going to show it to you. You want to know the answers to the why questions? I'm not going to tell you. It belongs to me and to me alone. Then there's some examples of blueprint wisdom. Verses 25 and 26, he gave the wind its weight. God commands the wind to blow, where to blow, how hard to blow. He appointed the waters by measure. God commands and sustains and restrains all the water in the world, all the ocean currents. He directs every molecule of water in the ocean. God is sovereignly, continually directing every single movement. Rain, thunder, and lightning, God is in complete control of the frequency and the intensity and duration of every location of, of every single raindrop, every single lightning strike at any given moment. Verse 27, he saw it and declared it. He established it and searched it out. What's it? God's blueprint wisdom. God has declared and established his perfect, flawless blueprint wisdom. All things are working according to the master architect, which is God, at all times. He's designed and decreed all things, all perfectly for his glory. There are no bugs. There are no error codes. There are no shorts. There are no missing parts. There is no inconsistency to God's blueprint wisdom. It is perfect at all times. After saying all that, verses 1 through 27, now we come to verse 28. The emphasis on the first 27 chapters is it can't be found, it belongs to God alone, but to man, he says this, Behold, the fear of the Lord is wisdom, and to turn away from evil is understanding. So what God is telling us in this chapter is, blueprint wisdom is mine. This is what I'm giving to you. This blueprint wisdom, I'm not going to disclose, I'm not going to share it, you can't find it. But I am giving you this. I'm giving you wisdom for the rest of us. Live before me in reverence and awe, repent of your sin, turn from evil, and walk according to righteousness. That's it. That's the wisdom that God has given to us. To summarize, chapter 28 is this. God's blueprint wisdom cannot be found by man. Only God has it. But God has not left us without wisdom. He has given us wisdom for the rest of us. And it is this. Submitting to God by submitting to the Son and applying the truth of God's word to all aspects of our lives. 
That's what chapter 28 is saying. And from that, we need to draw a couple of applications. So number one, we must be content with God alone possessing blueprint wisdom. We must be content with blueprint wisdom remaining with God because God is not going to answer all our questions. The ultimate reason for everything that's happening, the reason behind everything that happens in our life and in the world, he's not going to share that. It cannot be found. God says, you want me to tell it to you? I'm not going to. Because you're not the architect. You're not the engineer. You're not God. And I'm not going to share it with you. This is just one thing that you can't have. That's what God is, is telling us. Which means, as believers, we should never get angry at, or mad at God for not answering our why question. This is the biggest question that Job is asking in the book. Why is all this happening? We shouldn't be upset or mad at God when we experience loss or pain or tragedy or suffering in this life and we ask him to answer the why question. It's okay to, under, to not understand why. It's okay to, to want to know why. It's okay to ask God why in prayer, but when he doesn't answer that question, we need to be content with the answer, no, I'm not going to tell you why. We cannot complain, which means... Uh, not knowing the answer to the why questions in life is not an excuse to shake our fist at God or become mad at Him or, or break off our fellowship with Him or, or say, well, I'm not coming to church anymore because God did this to me in my life and He hasn't shown me why or, or anything like that. That's, there's, no, there's no reason for that. We can't be hurt or offended because God remains silent when we ask Him a why question. Like Job, our response is to trust God, to trust in his blueprint wisdom, to trust that he has the answers, even though he's not disclosing them to us. The correct response is to trust and remain faithful. So number one, we must be content with God alone, having blueprint wisdom, and not be mad when he refuses to share the answers. Number two, we must understand and make use of the wisdom for the rest of it. This is what God has given to us. He's given us wisdom for the rest of us. So we need to, first of all, make sure we understand what's going on here. I want us to look at three verses in particular and really give your attention to these and to the, the message that's being sent. Number one, Proverbs 1.7. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. Proverbs 1.7. Ecclesiastes 12.13. The end of the matter... All has been heard, fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. And then our passage, our verse, Job 28, 28, and he said to man, behold, the fear of the Lord, that is wisdom, and to turn away from evil is understanding. To fully appreciate what God is saying in these three verses, we need to understand, first of all, that Job, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, they are referred to and called wisdom literature in the Bible, along with some of the Psalms, and some would include Song of Solomon in there, but, but these, these are the big, big three. These are the heavyweights. Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, and Job. Those are, that's wisdom literature. Look where these verses show up. Proverbs, an entire book dedicated to wisdom literature, an entire book dedicated to 
to instruction and, and, and teaching to help you live life rightly before God. All kinds of nuggets thrown in there. At the very beginning, Proverbs 1-7, when God is setting the stage for the entire rest of the book, he tells us at the very beginning of chapter 1, this is what this book is for. This is what it's about. And here is the, the, the big message of this whole book. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. Then we move to Ecclesiastes. That is at the end of the book. Remember, Ecclesiastes was written by King Solomon, and this, this is written after everything has been attempted. Remember, King Solomon denied himself nothing. If he desired it, he did it. He tried it all. Building projects, gardens, adventures. I mean, he did it all. He tried everything in life that you and I could never get to all the things that we want to try. He tried it all. He, he saw uh, foolish people prosper. He saw uh, righteous people uh, fall into calamity. He, he, he saw it all and he said, this is it. I've looked at everything. And of course, this is inspired word of God as well. And he says this, the end of the matter, all has been heard. Fear God and keep his commandments for this is the whole duty of man. It is the capstone verse of the entire book of Ecclesiastes, which is part of the wisdom literature. And then we have ours in Job 28, 28. This is, like I said, often referred to as the hinge chapter in the entire book of Job. It is dedicated to wisdom, both God's blueprint and wisdom for the rest of us. The wisdom that we are to to receive from God and, and to live out. And at the very end of this verse, here it is. Behold, and he said to man, this one's for you, behold, the fear of the Lord, that is wisdom, and to turn away from evil's understanding. God has placed, and you'll see the consistency in all three of those statements, fear of the Lord, fear of God, fear of the Lord. Each one of those is, is kind of like triple synonymous parallelism. They're all, they're all kind of the same, they're all worded a little differently, but they're saying the same thing. And they're all in wisdom literature, and they're all either the, the featured beginning or end or capstone verse. In other words, this. God has placed this message in his word. He has showcased it so that it is impossible for us to miss. He wants us to understand this is how to live rightly in the world. This is wisdom for my creatures. I'm the creator. I get the blueprint wisdom. This is for you. We can't miss it. It's not just Job. It's, it's everywhere in wisdom literature, and it's the featured verse. It's hard to ignore. It's impossible to ignore. And so what I want us to see here also is that it starts with submitting to God. It starts with the fear of the Lord, the fear of God, fear of the Lord. What does that mean? It means coming to God in reverence and awe, in faith, with a repentant heart. Coming before God in reverence and awe with a repentant heart, submitting to God. And the Bible teaches that in order to submit to God, we need to submit to the Son. We need to submit to the Lord Jesus Christ. That is the beginning of wisdom, is to turn to Jesus. In fact, the New Testament leaves nothing to our imagination. It comes out, it explicitly identifies the Son of God with wisdom. 1 Corinthians one twenty four. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God, and the wisdom of God. If we want to live rightly before God, if we want to properly use the wisdom that he has given us, the wisdom for the rest of us, step one is coming 
to Jesus Christ. Turning to the Lord. That's how it starts. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. Without faith in Jesus, we will not have the Spirit of Jesus, which is the Holy Spirit. Without the Holy Spirit, we will not have the spiritual sight necessary to properly understand the Word of God. And if we don't properly understand the Word of God, then it will be impossible to properly apply the Word of God in our life. That's an unbroken chain that starts with Jesus Christ. If knowledge is knowing truth, wisdom is applying truth in our lives, and it is impossible to do without that chain remaining intact. That means it starts with Jesus Christ. Here's wisdom for the rest of us. I've talked about it a couple times. We're going to define it. I'm going to use three simple definitions and so you can kind of see it from three different perspectives or angles. And the last one is probably the easiest one to remember and the simplest. Wisdom for the rest of us. The spiritual ability through faith in Christ to understand God's word correctly, the desire to order our life based on God's word, and to act on that desire by properly applying God's word both long-term and day-to-day in our life. Steve Lawson says this, seeing ourselves for who we are and any situation for what it is and applying God's truth accordingly. And then one more, submitting to God by submitting to his son and applying the truth of God's word to all aspects of our life. That's wisdom for the rest of us. That's, That's what's captured in verse 28. That's how to live wisely in this life. It's how to rightly navigate this world. It's not by having all our why questions answered. It's not by by sitting back in our armchair demanding that God answer all our why questions and until we have that presented to us in a nice package with a bow on it so so that we're intellectually satisfied and we have no further questions, now we can move forward in faith. That's not it. God's come out and told us. He says, I'm not sharing that with you. I'm not showing you the blueprint. But I have given you this, and I want you to trust me. It's trusting the one who knows all the answers, but has chosen not to reveal them to us. It's a little bit of a paradox there. We're to trust in him who has promised to work all things for his glory and for the good of his sheep. In that order. We're to trust him. Romans 9, 20 and 21 Well, what is molded say to its molder, why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? What does that question start with? Why? We're the clay. God's the molder. Wisdom for the rest of us is about acknowledging our place as created creatures, trusting God to the best of our ability, living according to his word, approaching all things in life with a humble attitude, looking to Jesus, our head, and applying his truth. All things, all things. So that means being a husband or a wife or a father or a mother or a son or a daughter being a supervisor or a frontline employee. It means whether we're at work or whether we're at home. It means whether we're in the car or whether we're walking, mowing the lawn or washing the dishes, talking or remaining silent, in public or by ourselves, 
in times of plenty or in times of want, when we're healthy or when we're sick, when we're loaded with burdens or when we're carefree, when we're serious or when we're joking. At all times, we are to apply wisdom for the rest of us in all areas. There is no time in our life where we're not to to take advantage of God's wisdom for the rest of us. In fact, a large chunk of our sanctification is learning to apply wisdom for the rest of us to every single area of our life. Because sometimes it works like this. Sometimes as a new believer, we we very quickly understand that God uh, has commanded us to meet one day in seven. So we come to church as a new believer. We want to. We have a new desire for that. We want as much of God as we can get. So we very quickly recognize that's important. But sometimes there's a disconnect between making sure we're, we're in the Lord's house on the Lord's day and then what happens Monday through Saturday. Sometimes we think, okay, this is, this is it. And then maybe a little while longer after being a believer, we, we realize, wait a minute, you mean I have to be a believer at work too? Because they kind of play by a different set of rules. You know, and I, I have to kind of blend in over there. I mean, you, you don't understand. This is just the way this works. And in order to make progress, I'm going to have to, to play the game. And then we realize, oh, wait a minute. Jesus' lordship extends over work? Then maybe as a, as a young adult, maybe as a, as a teenager or as a, as a student, we, we say, I'm a believer, I believe in Jesus. And then at some point it dawns on us, wait a minute, you mean my thought life? Whoa, 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 whoa. I thought it was, I need to be in church and I need to do good things and I need to follow the Bible, but I thought what goes on up here is up to me, right? I mean, I'm not sinning if I think evil or think sinful things. Yeah, it includes thought life. And then sometimes it smacks somebody else. Wait a minute, finances? Whoa, what do you mean? Yeah, that's, that's God's money. You're a steward over it. And he's going to be holding you accountable for every cent. And one by one, we see different areas of our life. Media and entertainment, leisure time, my discretional time, that, that also is a place where I need to apply wisdom for the rest of us. Food and drink, interactions with spouse, between children and parents. I was at a church, not this one, I was at a church one time and I was teaching a Sunday school class for high schoolers. And there was a senior, 17 or 18 years old, and I decided I was going to teach on the Ten Commandments and we got to the Fifth Commandment and they said, wait a minute, honor your father father and mother? I didn't know that was in there. And two things struck me. One, what has this church been teaching for the last 18 years? Um, but also, what, the, what have their parents been teaching them? But it was, more than anything, tragic. Because here was a young adult who did not realize that that was an area of our life that Jesus' lordship extended over. They didn't realize that there was any sort of responsibility or accountability with their relationship with their parents. There is no area or aspect or compartment or drawer in our life where Jesus' lordship does not extend. 
There's a trend out there, I'm not sure if you're aware of it or not, but this is kind of a new thing where um, adults that have the means have, have taken up to create individual spaces for themselves. And uh, so for a man, it's called a man cave, and for the woman, it's called the she shed. And the man cave is this place in the garage or the basement or someplace out of the way where it's just for the man. And, and so they put you know, your high school wrestling trophy in there and your, your, your movie posters and, and the, uh, the, the stuffed uh, mounted deer head with the antlers, all the things that, that your wife doesn't want in the rest of the house. And then the she shed is sometimes this kind of like garden shed or this tool shed out in the backyard, maybe a 12 by 12 with big windows and maybe a cozy uh, heater or fireplace and comfortable couches and a, and a coffee machine and it's where she goes to read and, and retreat and, and be by herself. And sometimes it, it, is, it goes that uh, the, the man and the woman get kind of protective over those spaces and they say, you know what, this is my space and this is really my space. In fact, I don't want you to go in my space. This is off limits for anybody but me. Unless you're with me here, I give you permission. I don't want you in there. There are no man caves or she sheds when it comes to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. There are no off-limits areas where we say, Lord, I give you this area, this area, this area, but this area is kind of still my private area, and I'll let you in here when I, when I give you permission. But other times, I want to be left alone. Like all of God's good gifts, wisdom for the rest of us is for our benefit. I want us to think back for a minute. I know this is, could be difficult or painful, but think back during some of the darker times in your life or think back on times when you failed to utilize God's wisdom for the rest of us. Think about a time when you failed to implement God's wisdom. You failed to apply it in some area of your life, an area or a time of regret. A time of regret. Now, how would that time have turned out differently if you had applied God's word to that situation? If you, if you knew God's word, if you knew scripture, if you understood it rightly, and you applied it. Very differently. We all have times of regret. We all have times when we can think back in our life and think, if only I had done that differently. If only I knew then what I know now, and if I had put it into practice, I would have done it differently. We've all done foolish things. Of course, the most foolish thing anyone could ever do is fail to place their faith in Jesus. We all have regrets, but praise God, our sin is forgiven. Unbelief will not be forgiven. Not believing in Jesus will, will not be forgiven. Unbelief will cause eternal regret, not just temporary or not lifelong regret, but eternal regret. That's why wisdom for the rest of us starts with turning to Jesus Christ in faith, submitting to God by submitting to his Son. You see, when we fail to take that first step, we're, we're failing to deal with our sin problem. We all have inherited sin. We all, Adam was the, the first man created by God, and he was our, what's called, federal head. He was our representative. And when Adam fell, 
all humanity fell in Adam. We have the, the, the guilt of Adam imputed to us. And of course we add our own sin to that throughout our lives, but we, we stand before God condemned as our default state because we fell in Adam. And so we have a sin problem. Adam had a sin problem. We have a sin problem. Moses had a sin problem. Job had a sin problem. Job lived righteously before God, but that doesn't mean he was sinlessly perfect. Job needed a redeemer as well. We all do. Failing to turn to Jesus is the most foolish thing we could ever do. Failing to turn to Jesus is the most uh, foolish thing anyone could ever do. But by turning to Jesus, we're taking that first step of applying God's wisdom for the rest of us. We're taking that step of repenting of our sin, turning to Jesus in faith. And when we do that, God promises through the second Adam, Jesus, to apply his righteousness, not Adam's sin, but, but Jesus' righteousness to us. It's a spiritual transaction. Once we're declared righteous and the penalty of our sin has been forgiven and made by the, through the payment of Jesus' blood on the cross, now we stand in right, right standing before God. Now we can move forward with rightly understanding his word and then rightly understanding it, rightly applying it, and then moving through the rest of our life, applying and using wisdom for the rest of us. It's good to know that Jesus' life was perfect and that he perfectly obeyed God's law. He perfectly applied the, the wisdom that God has given us in his word. He perfectly applied that. Unlike Adam, unlike Moses, unlike Israel, Jesus is the one who succeeded where all others, including ourselves, have failed. So we are to turn to him in faith. There are two takeaways, two challenges for this. One is for the believer. If, if you're a believer, and I would grant that that's most of us here this morning, we're followers of Jesus Christ, I want us to take an honest look in the mirror and see if we can identify where's our, where's our man cave or she shed when it comes to applying wisdom for the rest of us. Where's, where's one aspect, one drawer or compartment in our life where we've not completely surrendered and bent the knee to the Lordship of Jesus Christ? Ask God through prayer to reveal that to you. And for those that are not in Christ this morning, the challenge takeaway is this. Turn to faith in Jesus Christ. The most foolish thing anyone could ever do is not repent of believe in Jesus. It's the unforgivable sin and it will carry with it eternal regret. Turn to Jesus. Trust in the one who succeeded on your behalf. Amen. Father, thank you for giving us your word and also for giving us the spirit of Christ to properly understand this word. And Father, we, we look to you for completion of that chain. We want to apply your word to our life. It's one thing to know your word. It's one thing to know what it says. It's another thing to actually put it into practice. Father, give us the power of your Holy Spirit to do just that. And Father, also help us to trust in the one who succeeded on our behalf. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.